James Curtis is a biographer and the author of Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. This is James Curtis. I'm Duncan Yammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. Um, well, cool. I'm here with James Curtis. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Certainly. So you are the uh, author of a number of books, but most recently, Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. Um, mm -hmm. And Buster Keaton is an interesting subject because he's one of sort of the giants of silent film. And he comes from uh, an interesting background. He was not mm -hmm. a born... I suppose at this time, they didn't really have, you know, kids walking around with cameras at eight years old or anything like that. No. In the world of, of vaudeville. Um, and he's a child performer. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things, as we sort of talk about who this, this man becomes, um, I'm always curious about with child performers, was he, was he forced into this by his parents? I mean, did, did he ever well, carry a chip on his shoulder about it? Well, he was born into it. It's the only world he knew. You know, he was born in a medicine show. So uh, from the time of his first memories, he was on stage in some way or another, even if he was just crawling out on stage unbidden to uh, see where his parents were. And so uh, he got used to the audience's reaction, the noises that the audience made, probably how the audience smelled and acted and what they ate at the performance, all that stuff. And uh, it just became part of his DNA. And uh, so it was a perfectly natural thing for him. Uh, the fact, I think, that he had the kind of mind that would have qualified him to become a pretty successful civil engineer or uh, inventor of some sort, if he were to go down a different path, uh, makes it interesting in the stand from the standpoint that his background became comedy and how you entertain an audience. And so applying those capabilities, those uh, inclinations, those natural gifts to a problem like making an audience laugh, either in a theater or on the screen, uh, you end up with a rather unique character. And was his early, you know, performances, he was getting thrown around, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, was all this like legal? Well, yes and no. I mean, there were a lot of restrictions back then on uh, what children could do on stage. Uh, the law was very specific, uh, unfortunately or fortunately for Buster. The law didn't specifically say that you could take a four or six-year-old kid and uh, throw them from one end of the stage to the other. And so that was the kind of uh, loophole that they discovered and made use of. But uh, uh, the act looked a lot worse than it actually was. It was essentially a wild, comedic, acrobatic turn. And uh, uh, Joe Keaton was self-taught. Buster was largely self-taught. Uh, but it was a knockabout comedy act. It was kind of a turn of the century uh, parody of child rearing in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Joe, the father, uh, his line was always, I love my son, but he must be taught to mind. And that set up the theme of the act for the next 12 to 18 minutes, depending on how things went. And it was as much improvised as it was prepared. And uh, so uh, things got rougher and rougher because always Buster, the, one of the uh, 
one of the things about the act that was pretty consistent was Buster was on the attack first. The father sets about doing his, uh, his own act, which involved a table and some chairs and uh, doing graceful acrobatic moves to music. And it was Buster's job to appear from the back of the stage. Uh, so he's not within his father's field of vision, but the audience can see him. And he's usually wielding a weapon like a broom or something. And uh, he walks up to where his father is balancing something and sweeps him off his feet with a broom and then takes off and runs like hell backstage again. And so uh, this was the start of the battle. And so when Buster misbehaves, uh, he gets picked up by the nap of the neck and tossed into the scenery or something. Uh, but this is all stuff that was uh, expected. Uh, the audience looked forward to it, and uh, Buster was never seriously hurt. I see. Kind of like a more family-oriented, itchy and scratchy. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. It's, it, it was, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, Sylvester and Tweety Bird, things like that. But uh, uh, both were equally guilty of the crime that they're being uh, uh, accused of. And so... Uh, as a result, the audience could sit back and laugh and not necessarily feel sympathy for one or the other. They were both uh, they were both uh, willing participants in this mayhem on stage. And I'm I'm curious uh, when you said earlier that Buster had the mind of a, a civil engineer or could have mm -hmm. gone that not not to jump ahead too far. But w when you say that, are you referring to like the design of all these wild stunts later on and? Or, yeah, or, yeah, I am. I, I think that he had conceptually, he was the head of the studio when he was making his features and shorts, and he had uh, uh, good support from strong gag men, as they were referred to in those days, or writers, as we would say today. Uh, but as uh, Leo McCary once said, you know, they he when he worked for Harold Lloyd, Harold Lloyd made a practice of hiring writers away from Buster Keaton, and what Harold Lloyd either couldn't accept or wasn't uh, thinking clearly about was that Buster's greatest, most effective writer was Buster himself and you couldn't steal him away. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I think he inspired what went on on screen just as, uh, as it did as a kid on stage as time went along. And he became a very big star on stage on the vaudeville stage and really the star of the act. And uh, Joe Keaton, for instance, uh, was very conscious of the fact and very okay with the fact that uh, if Buster didn't work, the act didn't work. And he was very proud of Buster's success as a result of that, this business about, well, Buster was an abused child and Joe set about to injure him on stage. That's, that's idiotic. It's not logical. Uh, if you, if you injure Buster, you pay a great financial penalty for that in terms of work. And so, uh, no, it was all laid out and it was expected. And uh, Buster learned early on how to land on a hard surface and not break bones or injure himself in any way. And he demonstrated that right up to the time he died. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Some of the stories you hear where he's in his fifties and still doing some of these wild stunts. Well, he was approaching 70. Dick Van Dyke told one time he was visiting Buster at his house in Woodland Hills and uh, Buster had a famous, uh, 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 thing that he would do that he learned from his father where uh, and he did it on the kitchen counter one day when he, Victor Van Dyke was visiting him and, and he would put one leg up on the counter then the other leg up on the counter and there'd be a seemingly pause of maybe about 10 seconds before he gravity would take over and he'd fall to the floor yeah. and he was never injured because he knew where to fall and mm -hmm. uh, but uh, 
that was something he could do right up to the his last day almost. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that he does become this huge uh, success in film, but it mm-hmm. seemed like uh, him and, and his family had some kind of reservations about the film industry. Is that right? Joe had an attitude about it, and it's, it wasn't just exclusive to him that uh, if you put the act on film, then uh, who needs the live act anymore? He thought it would uh, hurt the business, and uh, and uh, maybe it would have to some degree. I'm not sure. Uh, early on, one of the uh, terms that was used to describe early motion pictures was automatic vaudeville, and so there became a superstition among a lot of top acts in vaudeville. If you committed your act to film, uh, it would affect your marketability. And uh, so I, I think that's what happened early on. As Joe said, you're not going to put the three Keatons on a bedroom sheet. And, uh, and he stuck with that for a long time. Uh, he was finally talked onto the screen by his son. And uh, he made his debut out here in California in 1917 in a Roscoe Buckle comedy. And how does um, how, how does Buster make that transition into film? He he meets very naturally, you know, and 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 I think one of the reasons that it appealed to him so, apart from the fact he wouldn't have to travel as much as he had when he was uh, on stage, uh, was he was fascinated by the workings of the camera and the things you could do with film, even something as basic as cutting two pieces of film together to create an effect of one sort or another. Uh, Arbuckle was part of this. He was very truly uh, Buster's mentor uh, in film. And uh, he, on the first day that Buster was on the set with him in New York in 1917, and he opened up the camera and showed him how the, uh, the uh, shutter worked and uh, how the film ran through the camera, the aperture, all of that, and explained it to him. And Buster was fascinated by the workings of the camera and very naturally and quickly, he became uh, convinced uh, that the best things you could do on film were things that you could not do on stage. And he, he just understood this very naturally. A lot of comedians did things they could just as easily have done on stage. Uh, the camera is just there to record their actions. Buster knew how to use the camera in a way to, achieve effects that you just couldn't achieve on stage. And so the world became his canvas very early as a result of that. Oh, I'm, one of the uh, sort of topics that I, I want to get into is the way the film industry worked at this yeah. time. Uh, because this is not, this is the silent film era. This is not, uh, you know, massive studios yet. Uh, it's not, you know, multi-million dollar productions. Um, and it seems like in that atmosphere, you could have a lot more creative freedom because there wasn't as much financial risk. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, you didn't have the technical difficulties that came with recording synchronous sound as you did later. Uh, So you were free to uh, unpack, uh, aim a camera wherever you want. wanted, And uh, with a couple of reflectors and some makeup, you're in business. And uh, later on, it wasn't nearly that simple, but it was back then. And, and so uh, they were able to devote a lot more time to how do you pull a gag off. Uh, all of the good gag men of that period, and, and Buster was as good as any of them, had the ability to visualize how something would play on screen, You know where the cuts would come, what the angle would be, why the audience would have, at, laugh at a certain angle and not at another angle. Um, 
in the case of the sinking boat, for instance, in the film, The Boat, uh, he was definitely convinced that the only way the gag would work is if the boat, when it was launched, went straight down progressively into the water and disappeared. It couldn't hesitate. It could not uh, vary in its motion. It had to be a very slick, smooth motion. They spent three days getting that effect because there was always a little bit of ballast involved and the boat wouldn't do what they wanted the boat to do. They finally ended up bringing a, a tow line and dragging it under. Uh, but uh, with a lot, with the help of a lot of pig iron and uh, uh, holes in the hull and all that stuff, but they finally got the effect they wanted. But uh, a lesser, a lesser comedian, a lesser team probably would have settled for the gag being good enough with some hesitation and it wouldn't have had the impact that it does even today on modern audiences. Yeah. And it seems, it seems like he just gets some roles and some short real films and then does a feature and then some guy, I think Joseph Schenk, uh, mm -hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Joe Skank. Skank. Okay. Skank. It just gives him his own production unit. What becomes Buster Keaton productions. He's like, all right, go wild. And he's able to just go on a, a, a run of making films until one of them busts. Is that well, well it, it's, it's a little bit more opportunistic than that in the sense that um, uh, the company was originally created. It was called Kamiki. And uh, it was originally created a group of 10 investors, which included the great songwriter Irving Berlin. Uh, they got together and they were going to produce two real comedies starring Roscoe Arbuckle, Fatty Arbuckle, who they had uh, hired away from Max Sennett in 1917. And uh, they based him on a floor of the uh, studio that Norma Talmadge was uh, using in New York City, which is still there, incidentally. And uh, they proceeded to do these Arbuckle films, which, where the way the shorts were handled, not to get too far into the weeds with this, the way the shorts were handled back then would be that uh, the investors would front the money Typically, a, a short, an Arbuckle short, would cost about $30,000 in 1917 money. And once they delivered the negative to the distributor, the distributor was on the hook to um, reimburse them their costs. And so that's what happened. They, they'd get their money back. So they had a short period of exposure, and then it was a matter of splitting the profits afterwards. Um, Arbuckle was not uh, an investor in the company. He was a very well-salaried employee. Uh, but when he moved into features, Arbuckle was kind of a high-strung guy when it came to creating his comedies. And uh, he thought as much worry and innovation had to go into a two-reeler as it did into an entire feature. So he wanted to get into features. And when he declared in 1920 that he was going to make the move into features, then uh, the question was, what were they going to do uh, with the company, when the, with the investors? Did they uh, close down or did they want to move to another comedian? And Buster had been co-starring with Arbuckle, an extremely and exceedingly uh, increasingly prominent uh, roles uh, for four for three years at that point. And uh, so they said, OK, let's give Buster the chance. And so the first film made under that uh, new setup was essentially the same setup that uh, Arbuckle was using, the same people in support, et cetera. And they brought in Eddie Klein as a co-director for the Keaton ones, and uh, they just decided to go on. If it didn't work out, they'd say, oh, well. And uh, it was a situation where it was just a natural buster was there. They decided they needed a new comedian. Uh, he knew the routine by that point, and so he had his chance to shine, and shine he did. And 
he's able to shine until he does this movie, The General, which today is considered like his masterpiece. I think Orson Welles said it's the greatest comedy ever ever made. Well, a lot of people say that, yeah. A lot and, of and uh, the uh, it's it's still part of the uh, sight and sound list of the hundred greatest films among the critical community. Um, the general is the top. If you go one to one hundred, the general has traditionally been the top-rated feature comedy on that list. Better, more highly rated than Chaplin, Lloyd, any of them. What is it about it that is so good? Well, I think that the thing about it is that it's such a sophisticated piece of filmmaking uh, that one man was able to pull off something of that scope and at the same time have moments of brilliant comedy and other times of great thrills and a, and a good uh, involving story that is exquisitely well told. Um, it's the culmination of a series of feature comedies that Buster made. I think part of it also is because the, the general has as much drama in it as it does comedy. It's, it's not, uh, it's not easy to pigeonhole. If you, if people come into it expecting to laugh out loud comedy, they're going to get some of that but they're going to get a different kind of experience than they're expecting from say modern times or the bank dick or one of those other films that uh, uh, is 100% comedy. And uh, so it kind of stops you short in a way you're not expecting what he hands you. And I think the secret to Keaton's best work in the feature uh, segment is, is that he, he continuously offers you things you aren't expecting he avoids the cliche. He moves in a different direction. And he called it double crossing the audience, uh, which is a funny way of putting it. Uh, not exactly the case, but again, a lot of comedy is based upon surprise. You know, you're not expecting it to go where it does and it catches you off guard. And uh, the, the general does that, but so does, uh, so does a lot of his earlier comedies. Go West is another one I became very fond of and uh, working on the book because it's something you don't expect. You're expecting a standard issue Western parody and it's got elements of that to it, but it's got a lot more to it than that. And I think in some ways that's his most personal feature. And uh, uh, I, so I think, I think a lot of people's feelings about Keaton as a filmmaker coalesce with um, the general and uh uh, and it holds up to that kind of uh, praise. But sometimes people, upon a first viewing of it, uh, they come away and think, I don't get it. You know, and if they go back and have a second viewing, and a third viewing, it starts to impress you a bit more. And uh, and uh, uh, I've always thought that uh, a good film gets a little worse every time you see it because you start to see the seams and the holes and the plotting and that sort of thing. A great film gets better every time you see it. And the general is a great film. At the time though, that seems like a hard sell for a, a commercial film studio. And yeah, it, it was. Uh, Buster at that point had pretty much full control of what he did. Uh, the film cost a bit more than... Um, uh, his comedies generally did. Uh, that was a bit of a problem. And the difference that you may mention, you may remember that earlier I said that the investors were reimbursed for the cost of a short subject uh, from the distributor. And so 
their exposure was limited. That didn't happen with the features. They had to lay out a lot more money and they had to wait for the returns to get the money back again. Nobody was going to reimburse them. So they had a lot more exposure on these features. Uh, the general cost in excess of $400,000 in 1926 money. Um, and although it ultimately was profitable, uh, it, the cost, what it cost to make, made it less profitable than some of the other films that he made. And the investors started getting nervous about funding Buster in the future. Uh, they were concerned about his profligate spending patterns, as you will, although I don't think he was ever very wasteful, but uh, he tended to visualize big grand events and, uh, and, and put them on screen. And um, as we saw in his last independent feature, uh, Steamboat Bill Jr., where he, he destroys an entire town with a, a cyclone. And uh, so uh, there, there was, people were getting, uh, concerned about that. And also we we're talking about the late twenties before the stock market crash. And there was seemingly a lot of easy ways of making money at that time. If investors were interested in making money, they could get into real estate, they could get into the stock market, they could get into a lot of things. And uh, there were a lot easier ways to make a buck than financing feature film comedies. And uh, so they wanted out at a certain point and it just happened to coincide with coming to sound. So there were a lot of things going on simultaneously that uh, uh, contributed to his exit as a independent filmmaker and his uh, moving to MGM in 1927. Yeah, it's too bad because given the general, perhaps he could have developed that further and, and done really interesting things. But the this exodus that coincides with the period of... of mm you know, the end of silent films. Yeah. A, a lot of people took that to mean like, oh, well, clearly this guy just can't make the transition. You know, he can't, he can't keep up. Well, but, no, oh, go on, please. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say, that's not really the case though. Right? No, it wasn't the case at all. He, he, he wasn't afraid of sound. I mean, Chaplin was uh, actively dismissive of sound and he didn't make a talking film until 1940 or he didn't release a talking film in 1940. Uh, he, his last two silent features had synchronous scores and sound effects and a gibberish song in one of them, but um, they were essentially silent films. Uh, Buster's uh, attitude toward talking films was uh, we talk when it's necessary. We don't talk just for the sake of talking. And uh, we leave room for the same kind of stunts and gags that we could do on the silent screen. And, uh, and he started out at MGM doing that, but uh, uh, the factory system was not used to or uh, keen on accommodating the type of work that comedians did where they would uh, uh, put something on screen, preview it, uh, see what worked and what didn't, and then go back and reshoot and put it up in front of an audience again, uh, again, go back out and reshoot. And uh, they go over budget sometimes. A lot of the time they go over schedule. And uh, that was okay if you're running your, whole, your own show like uh, they were back in the silent days. But uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Buster said it was, you know, you had to requisition a paperclip in triplicate. And um, that was the case and certainly seeming the case to him because uh, if they needed somebody for a particular shot or an idea, they just came up with in the old days, they go and get somebody off the street 
and yeah. uh, offer him 20 bucks to come in and appear in the shot with him, you know, that sort of thing. So a uh, whole different mindset. And Buster got away with it on his first two films, which are both silence. And uh, the first talking experience was something else again. Yeah, it seems like this deal with MGM was sort of just like a bureaucratic nightmare almost. I mean, yeah. Well, also, MGM was not a studio that uh, excelled at comedy. Uh, they had no uh, experience in it, really. Uh, an outfit like Paramount, they were built on comedy. And so they knew how to treat these people and how to work with them more so. Uh, the Marx Brothers came up through Paramount, uh, W.C. Fields, people like that. Uh, you didn't see that kind of talent at MGM. Uh, they were the studio Greta Garbo and John Gilbert and people like, and Lon Chaney, who was a melodrama specialist. Uh, uh, so they had, they had their uh, niche, but the comedy was not it. Is that, do you think that led in part to the fact that they eventually uh, got rid of him? I mean, even though he was profitable, well, they got rid of him simply because Thalberg had had a heart attack. Thalberg was was Buster's protector. He appreciated Buster, uh, and Buster was going through some tremendous turmoil in his personal life at the time. Uh, when Thalberg was gone from the studio for nine months recuperating from a heart attack, uh, the guy in charge of production for a while was Louis B. Mayer. And Mayer didn't like Buster. Buster didn't like Mayer. Buster was convinced that... Uh, Mayor had no sense of humor whatsoever, which is possibly true. Um, and so Mayor and Buster was drinking on the job, which uh, Mayor disapproved of violently. So uh, when Buster started to misbehave and Thalberg wasn't there to protect him, he took the opportunity to fire him with alacrity, I might say. And uh, so uh, one day he was gone. And uh, when Thalberg came back, he uh, made an effort to uh, bring Keaton back into the fold. And Keaton was at that point, disinclined to have anything to do with MGM. And it was really uh, in terrible shape uh, uh, physically at that point in his life. And uh, so he passed on the opportunity to go back to Thalberg and he said it was the greatest mistake of his life. Yeah. And, and you mentioned um, the, the drinking, um, you know, while mm. working, et cetera, his, his life kind of falling apart. His marriage is breaking up. Uh, I think around this time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and he's basically, I mean, he's basically an alcoholic, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, why did that all, I mean, was it just the dissolution of his marriage or the loss of independence? Was it a combination? Uh, of all of the above, all of the above. He was unhappy professionally and he was unhappy personally. And, uh, he sought the solace of the bottle. Uh, and, uh, it just contributed to his uh, self-destruction in a sense uh, at MGM. Um, I don't know how you could have changed the outcome based upon all the circumstances that were uh, weighing on him uh, simultaneously. Changed uh, the outcome. Pardon me? Changed what outcome? The outcome of him drinking or? Of him, of him leaving MGM as he did. Yeah. Uh, he, he famously said that when... Um, Toward the end, he said, you studio people warp me, warp my mind. And uh, uh, that's true. You know, he, it was just a, a system that wasn't suited to uh, nurture somebody like Buster Keaton or for that matter, Chaplin or Harold Lloyd, 
to use three examples, uh, but Chaplin Lloyd were rich enough that they were able to uh, control their old destinies and Keaton was not. He never cared much about money. It was a tool as far as he was concerned. And uh, so he didn't have ownership of his own pictures. He did not have the wherewithal to go and produce his own pictures and release through say United Artists again. So he was, he was out of luck. He was used to being an employee, a salaried employee, and he had reached the point where no one wanted to hire him. You, you know, what's interesting. There's a, there's, there's this author, Nassim Taleb. And one of the things he says that, that just reminded me of that is mm-hmm. uh, three deadliest addictions in life are uh, heroin, uh, processed sugar, and a monthly salary. Well, I think they'd figured that out at MGM years earlier because um, uh, an earlier subject, I did a book on Spencer Tracy was a longtime employee at MGM and uh, he wanted to be paid by the picture just, just uh, uh, so that if he only wanted to do one picture a year, okay, well they would pay him X dollars for one picture and then he could go off and do something else if he wanted um, they insisted on term contracts and salaries because you get addicted to that weekly paycheck and it's a form of control. Uh, they, they, they've got that. They've got you under their thumb, their corporate thumb when you need that weekly paycheck to support your wife, your family, uh, do the things that you need to do. And Tracy had a lot of expenses. So, <clears throat> sorry, in, in this case, did, did Chaplin then, um, just have a better business sense that enabled him to, to go on being in control? Or- yeah, I think Chaplin was born with a, a good business sense. Uh, Keaton didn't have one because he didn't care. Uh, so Chaplin made sure after some bad early experiences that he controlled his own films, that he owned them. He uh, financed them himself. Um, but Chaplin was Chaplin. He was almost unique in that regard. Uh Harold Lloyd, a variation on the same theme. Uh, he owned his own films, financed them, uh, was in charge of them. And there was a while there in the late 20s, especially where uh, he was the most successful of all of them in terms of uh, financial terms. And uh, on a Chaplin, I think, was more popular internationally. But in the United States and England, uh, Harold Lloyd was a top comedy star. And Buster was kind of the... Uh, um, the cult favorite. Uh, he had a smaller following, but they were absolutely devoted to him. And, and he does, he never seems to like truly stop working, uh, but he does have kind of a, a slowdown. And yeah. after, uh, you know, leaving MGM, um, but eventually his films are rediscovered and sort of re-released. Yeah. And he, he's able to get some, some love from the people again. Well, yeah, it was, it, it was great that he lived long enough to enjoy some of that appreciation. Uh, the last few years of his life, uh, he was internationally respected. He was cheered by critics and journalists and uh, 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 film festival attendees. And uh, um, Venice, the last trip he made to Europe, uh, he attended Venice uh, for the premiere of this thing that uh, he did with uh, Samuel Beckett called film and uh, which is a strange little film, but uh, the, the, the real reason why he had the 
acclamation that he did when he went there this last time was that uh, a couple of seasons before they had done a retrospective of Buster's greatest work and they had cast a broad net with the uh, various uh, international film archives and pulled together prints of most of his films and ran them. Buster wasn't there for that, but they all remembered that they came two years later when, when Buster came two years later, uh, uh, they cheered into the skies. I mean, there were, there were minutes and minutes where people wouldn't sit down. They stomped their feet. Uh, I've got a picture in my book toward the end where uh, he had said to his wife, who are they, who are they clapping for? And she said, you, and he stands up and someone snapped a picture of him. He's on the mezzanine there. We're right, right at the front. And uh, he looks up and he's got such a, a, astonished and bewildered look on his face. They're all clapping for him and he's just taking it in and trying to make sense of it. Man. Yeah. that It, it is good for him and for his mm -hmm. sake. He was able to experience that, but it's, it is too bad that he went all that time and was unable to, um, man, it, it's just thinking about the fact that it's not just being a good artist. It's also having this business savvy. And, yeah you know, being political within the studio system and these kinds of things. And yeah, yeah, he wasn't set up for that. He wasn't made for that. And uh, the interesting thing about one of the things that surprised me about doing the book on him was that how difficult it was to see his films during his lifetime. Um, they weren't in circulation the same way the Chaplin's were, Harold Lloyd's were. And so, or, or even the lesser comedians, all the, Max Sennett stuff that was on television, Laurel and Hardy you saw on television all the time, et cetera. But uh, Keaton, you had to live near the Museum of Modern Art or someplace that would borrow a print from the Museum of Modern Art to run it. Uh, not all the features were even thought to exist at one point. Uh, so uh, the writing that was done on Buster Keaton in the late 40s and early 50s was nostalgic in a sense, you know, and, and um, the people who did write about him were writing about memories of his films from the 1920s. And Buster Keaton was a great comedian. When, when you see, if you watch the first Ed Sullivan show that Buster appeared on, which is 1950, um, Ed Sullivan, who was a journalist for many years, he was a, a columnist for one of the New York papers. And uh, uh, he has to explain to his audience who Buster Keaton was. He said, you youngsters aren't going to know who he is. But uh, in, in my time, uh, he was one of the greatest of all comedians. And I want you to give him the biggest hand you've ever given anybody, you know, when he comes out. And, uh, and uh, that's the level of appreciation that people of that generation had for him. But for a couple of generations after that, they really hadn't seen Buster Keaton except in little cameos and feature films. Yeah. And, and occasionally on television. What was the thing you mentioned about him doing uh, something called film with Samuel Beckett? Yeah. That, happened. that was later. That was a, that was a little experimental thing. It was going to be part of a feature of three short films done by um, uh, three different playwrights. And Beckett's was the only one that got made. And, they, it was originally conceived for an actor named Jack McGowan, who was a, a, a great Beckett interpreter and would actually have been better in the film than Keaton turned out to be. But McGowan got, uh, things got bollocked up when the director, Alan Schneider, 
wasn't prepared in time and McGowan had to go away and fulfill a stage commitment and they were ready to shoot and they had no principle for it. And so they started um, wondering about names. I think zero Mostel's name came up at one point uh, Chaplin as if Chaplin would do something like that. Of course he wouldn't. Um, but then Keaton's name came up and Buster at that point had the mindset that, well, if the check is big enough, then I'll do it. If your money's green, then I'll, I'll do it if it suits me. And so uh, he agreed to do it. Uh, they offered him 5,000. So it was a payday for him. And he did exactly what uh, he was told to do. And people are titillated by it because you've got these two uh, very disparate figures coming together for this one odd little, little piece of work. And, uh, but it's not very good. And I do think it's miscast. Fair. Um... It, does he and when you said Chaplin wouldn't do it just because he was too big at that point well he was in Europe he couldn't come back to the United States necessarily because of tax situations and uh, he was still he was extremely rich he didn't have to do anything for money and uh, so no he wouldn't have done it that was unrealistic I don't even consider it but uh, uh, Keaton was still available he was for sale for the right price and uh, so that's that's how they got him so does, does Buster Keaton die a, a happy, contented man? Is he satisfied? I think so. Uh, um, he gave a long interview to Los Angeles Times not long before he fell ill. And uh, he, he, he seemed to be very satisfied and comfortable in his life. A lot of that had to do with his third wife, Eleanor, who was perfect for him and I think extended his life beyond question. Uh, by how she took care of him and how she enabled him to do the work that he was able to do at that time. And she was also his partner on television. She, if he needed a foil in the form of a female, a woman of some sort, it was usually Eleanor Keaton who did that. And uh, she was very good dancer. She could move well. Uh, so they were, and on stage, the same thing. So they were a good team. And uh, she made sure that his last years were as happy as they could possibly be. And, uh, she was uh, devoted to him, and uh, as were, as it turned out, film film uh, scholars, uh, critics, et cetera, who appreciated him as well. So uh, uh, the love was coming from all sides at that point, and uh, it's unfortunate that he didn't live to enjoy it even more, but he did get to experience it. When sort of, sort of wrapping up here, mm -hmm. um, when we look at... Um, Buster Keaton's influence on comedy, on film, with a guy like, uh, say, Orson Welles, it's mm -hmm. kind of obvious to point to some of the techniques he introduced, the way he, he changed film. Um, what, what is Buster's influence um, in, in the world of film? What's his legacy in this sense? Well, there are two aspects of that. The physicality, that he could do things that even the most sophisticated stuntmen couldn't do. And sometimes he stepped in for stuntmen. Uh, his uh, his belief was that stuntmen could, or stunt people, let's say, could um, technically pull off a difficult stunt, but they couldn't necessarily be funny. Uh, Buster's standard was you had to be both. And so he was continually throughout his career showing others how to do it. And I think sometimes it, it took in terms of uh, his approach and other times they just didn't get it. But uh, Buster was unique in that respect. Uh, the second aspect of it was 
his sophistication as a filmmaker and uh, what he developed in terms of a natural sense of how you uh, entertain and capture people on screen and how to use the screen to its best advantage and also how to make an audience laugh but at the same time also in a way that invites them into the action, into the process. Uh, Chaplin, everything was laid out for the audience. You could sit back, the laziest audience could laugh at Chaplin because he put it all out there for you. Uh, Buster, Buster beckoned you in, you know, you had to uh, be prepared to collaborate with Buster in order to fully appreciate his film. I think that's why repeated viewings are so important with his films because uh, you see new and exciting things every time. I think uh, that's a good note, perhaps to end it on. Uh, James, the, the book is Buster Keaton, A Filmmaker's Life. Um, is there a, a website anywhere that uh, you, you want to drop? Yeah, well, I have my own website, which is uh, jamescurtis.net. Excellent. All right, James, thanks once again for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure, Duncan. Thank you. All righty. Take care. Thank you to James Curtis, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.